1: Realm presents Tales Beyond Time, Episode One.
2: Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm. Realm is an audio entertainment company, which is just a fancy way of saying we love to put stories in your ears. We have a ton of shows in pretty much every genre you can think of, including the number one hit podcast, Orphan Black, The Next Chapter, narrated by Tatiana Maslany, the supremely talented star of the original TV series, and Memory Lane, created by Cyrus Shepard, the New York Times bestselling creator of Pretty Little Liars. You can learn about all our shows at realm.fm or by clicking our channel description wherever you're listening to this right now. As for what to expect from this show, let's get into it. Each week, Tales Beyond Time will present short fiction that we think is amazing. Thought-provoking, uplifting, unsettling, sometimes downright scary, and centered around a theme. Sometimes that theme will be monsters reimagined, other times it might be different takes on time travel, but every week it'll be something good. You'll hear from narrators ranging from legends like George Takei, to new voices you haven't yet experienced. And you'll always be hearing from someone here at Realm, namely from me, Marco Palmieri. Why me? Well, I'm one of Realm's producers, and I personally curated most of the short stories that you'll hear on this feed. I also bring three decades of experience in science fiction, fantasy, and other realms. In fact, one of my favorite claims to fame is working on all the different variations of Star Trek once upon a time. Because at what other job would your boss overlook you yelling, con on a bad day? But enough about me. Let's dive right into these tales beyond time. For our inaugural episode, we'll be listening to stories by two incredible authors, Tanana Reeve Du and AC Wise. Tanana Reev is known for a lot of things, winning an American Book Award, an NAACP Image Award, and a British Fantasy Award. She's an executive producer on the Shutter documentary Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, and together with her husband, the amazing author Stephen Barnes, she recently wrote an episode on Jordan Peele's reboot of The Twilight Zone, She's also one of the writers on Realm's production of Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King. I really can't say enough great things about Tanana Reeve. She's hands down amazing. Now, the story you're about to hear is legitimately bone chilling. It's called Caretaker, originally published in the January 2019 issue of Fangoria Magazine and narrated for Realm by David Sadsen. The setup is simple. 10 days after both his parents died, A toddler is found clean and well-fed in his crib. Who, or what, has been caring for him? Without further ado, please
3: enjoy Caretaker. Caretaker. Toddler survives an apartment for 10 days after murder-suicide. Gracetown, Florida. A Florida toddler, 2-year-old Carson Emery, has been rescued from a Gracetown apartment building after 10 days, apparently left alone after his parents' murder-suicide. Police report that the child was found clean and well-fed in his crib. In the room across from his, the bodies of his parents, Frank Emery, 35, and Rochelle Emery, 32, had been decomposing behind a closed door. Because of a bedroom window that seemed deliberately left open during the recent cold snap, no other residents in the building realized that the bodies were in the top-floor apartment. Residents say they never saw anyone enter or leave the apartment. The landlord believed the family was out of town and was collecting their mail. The one thing we know for sure is that this child didn't take care of himself, said Gracetown Police Chief Althea Grant. Someone was either living there with him or coming in and out of that apartment to feed and dress him, keep him quiet, and make sure those bodies were not found. Police are baffled by the case, since the mystery caretaker is not considered a suspect in the deaths. An investigation has revealed that Rochelle Emery poisoned her husband and herself after she discovered his affair with a co-worker. A suicide note taken into evidence from the scene matches her handwriting. Police report. Frank Emery taught math at Tallahassee Community College, and Rochelle Emery wrote about magic and ritual in a popular blog called Gracetown's Things Unseen. Carson Emery, now in foster care, is an only child. The family's dog is missing. Police would like to talk to anyone who might have information about who helped him survive his ordeal. Because Carson Emery was only two years old, he never knew what his parents were arguing about. He only knew that before, his parents spoke to each other in soft voices. Not as softly as they spoke to him, but still softly. And then came the after days, when they only spoke in shouts. The worst was when his mother shouted, because she sounded as if she had tripped and scraped her skin until she bled. His father's shouts only sounded angry. The same two words, Shut up! Carson tried the words on his tongue, Shut up! But it made his parents frown and say, No, Carson, don't say that. Even though his father said it first. Carson practiced several other words he heard from his parents' arguments on his one-eyed teddy bear, Roscoe. Stop it! And of course, I hate you! and then he would apologize and cuddle with his bear to sleep. But as far as he knew, his parents never apologized when they shouted, and they probably didn't cuddle either. But Carson didn't know that for sure, because his crib was in the room across the hall, and they always closed their door at night. That night, though, was different. That night, everything changed. It wasn't bad at first. Mama held him in her lap a long time, rocking back and forth with her arms squeezed tight around him, as if nothing and no one could be strong enough to pull him away. Carson liked when Mama squeezed him close. His body's wild, twitching muscles calmed against her skin, like she was a warm bath. He especially loved rocking with her when he was tired, his eyelids heavy as rocks. If he ever startled because he thought it was falling, or alone in his crib. He hated being alone in his crib. Mama's rocking told him he'd only imagined it, and she would be there forever. Mama wasn't really there forever, but that was how it seemed when she held him that way. Of all his memories of Mama, these were the ones he would keep all his life. She was wearing a red shirt because it was close to Christmas. Her perfume smelled like flowers. Her braid fell forward when she rocked him, tickling his nose. Not her face, not her voice, really. Her shirt, her flower smell, her braid. Mama. And her quiet tears, falling from her nose in raindrops. What's wrong, he said, or- Tried to say. It came out more like a whimper. Mama only sighed and rocked and kissed the top of his head. Carson would not remember much about his father from that night. He eventually would lose his memory of his father altogether. But he would always remember his dog, Gray Boy, a ghost colored gray terrier who often licked Carson's dinner crumbs from his face or sometimes snatched food from his hand. Once, Carson tried to get even by stealing Gray Boy's food out of his bowl, shoving the bland brown nuggets into his mouth as fast as he could. But Mama had told him, stop it, while Gray Boy grinned and laughed at him by wagging his tail. But Carson loved Gray Boy. He would run and catch a ball if Carson threw it. Mama and Daddy got tired of playing fetch, but Gray Boy would run and bring him the ball for hours. Greyboy was his best friend. Greyboy slept in Carson's room at night to protect him, Daddy said. Greyboy had moved into his room the day they brought him home. They told him the story almost every night. But not that night. That night, Mama had left him an extra bottle of milk and bag of goldfish in his crib, patted him on the head, with more tears dripping on him in a rain shower and walked across the hall to her room to close the door. She didn't even say, good night, or, I love you. Although maybe the rocking in the chair had been another way of saying it. Daddy never came to him that night at bedtime. Carson never saw either of them again. In the few seconds between when Mama opened her bedroom door and rushed to shut it again, Carson heard something he hadn't noticed before, moaning. The voice was as low as a grown man's and as helpless as a child's. Carson wondered whose voice that was and why he hurt so much. And it was daddy. He was hurt, like the little girl Carson had seen bleeding in the ER. And mama had said, well, at least you're not hurt that bad, huh, Carson? even though the bump on his head hurt worse than anything in the world. He wouldn't have had the bump if Daddy hadn't pulled his arm so hard and made him bump his head. And when Mama had said, How did this happen? Daddy had told her a lie, saying Carson had been running and tripped. And Carson had started crying, because the lie hurt worse than the bump on his head. Mama had looked at him and said, Honey, we've told you, instead of, poor sweet boo. And Carson had started screaming with rage. And now Daddy was hurting just like he had, maybe even worse. Carson wondered, did I do that to Daddy? If he had, he hadn't tried to. That trip to the ER had been days ago, and Daddy had whispered to him that night, I'm sorry, little man, that won't ever happen again. That was the first time Carson had seen Daddy cry, when Mama wasn't with him. Carson hadn't thought about Daddy's hard yank again, until he heard his soft moaning behind the click of the door. What Mama said was louder than the moaning, so Carson heard her even after the door was closed. That's what you get, baby. That's what you get, baby. Those didn't feel like the right words. She'd called Daddy Baby like she used to, but Mama's voice had sounded wrong, too, as if, just maybe, she were smiling. Keep on singing. This is my new favorite song, Mama said although Carson didn't hear any singing or music. Carson almost, almost, heard another moan. Carson knew something was wrong in his bones, even if he couldn't understand what. But when a long time went by, ten seconds to him was a long wait, and he didn't hear Daddy moaning for sure after Mama turned the TV up loud, Carson remembered the second bottle. Mama never let him have bottles at bedtime anymore, and he savored the sweet milk, still warm. His tummy was already full from dinner, but he settled against his pillow in his favorite bottle-drinking pose and forgot he had ever heard moaning. Gray Boy whined and paced outside his parents' closed door all night. The door never opened again, even when the sun was shining. Not ever. In the morning, Carson's diaper was wet and leaking, and he was hungry. He emptied the bag of goldfish all over his mattress. Mama should know he never ate goldfish for breakfast. And Gray Boy was barking, making a racket. Oh, but Carson was mad. He cried as loudly as he could, shaking the crib bars. Until he could not catch his breath. He tore off his sopping diaper and threw it across the room, and it stained the wall. Good. His skin was damp, and he was colder than he had ever been, or at least since yesterday. It had been daytime so long, it might already be night soon. Carson's parents had never waited so late to feed him his breakfast and change his diaper. When Carson was exhausted from crying, and Gray Boy was finally quiet too, looking sad as he sat in front of his parents' door, Carson decided to go to their room and wake them up. He had been able to climb out of his crib for a long time, although Mama always said, no, no, Carson, don't do that. But he was ready for a big bed without bars. Daddy had promised him one soon. Escaping the bars was easy, really. Carson hoisted himself up in the corner of the crib and balanced himself across the V. Then, hanging on tightly, he carefully swung his legs over until they dangled, and then he dropped. He stayed on his feet when they hit the floor. Gray Boy came to him, wagging his tail and licking his face. Gray Boy probably wanted to tell him he wasn't supposed to climb out, but Gray Boy did plenty he wasn't supposed to. Plenty? Carson ran across the hall to the closed door, already practicing the mean words he would say when he saw them. He reached up for the doorknob, and it was locked. Locked? Carson cried and screamed again, but Mama and Daddy would not open the door. For the first time, Carson wasn't just mad. He was scared. In a moment of fear he almost remembered daddy's moaning and mama's wrong words but mostly he was scared by the icy cold blowing from underneath their door in a sheet as if the windows were wide open that definitely wasn't right mama often said their rooms were too cold and she would thought it would be warmer in florida grayboy barked again his nose against the door Then Gray Boy backed up. Something moved. In the space between the door and the floor, Carson saw a shadow move inside the room. He banged on the door. Mama, he yelled. The shadow grew. At first, Carson thought the shadow was two legs, but it had spread until it blocked all of the cold air and light from the room, sealing the door on the other side. The shadow didn't look like a person. Carson couldn't tell exactly what it looked like. Then the shadow spilled beneath the door. When Carson played in the park, he liked to pour a bucket of water in the dirt until he made mud he could splash in. And the shadow spilling beneath the door looked like that, like thick mud, although it was too shiny and dark to be mud. When the shadow reached his toes, Carson realized it was, ants. So many ants were tangled all over each other that they moved like mud. There were too many ants to count, more ants than he'd imagined in the whole world. Gray Boy barked, but ants don't care about barking. By the time Carson thought about running away, the ants were already climbing up his legs in a pattern like a candy cane. And all of those tiny little ant legs tickled him so much that he stopped crying and started laughing. Soon his legs were so thick with ants that he looked like he was wearing long pants. If Mama could see, she would say, Oh, my goodness gracious. The ants roamed all over him until Carson was wearing ants in a thick coat up to his neck. A thick, warm coat. He wondered why he hadn't started wearing ants long ago. Gray Boy came to him and barked sharply in Carson's ear. Carson pushed Gray Boy away. Why should Gray Boy be the only one with a warm coat? Carson felt better about everything after he was wearing the ants. Once he was no longer cold, he felt better about being hungry and better about being alone. Just better. And that was only the beginning of Carson's very best time ever. When he walked to the living room, when he was wearing the ants, it felt more like gliding than walking. Sesame Street was already playing on the TV. He didn't know how he hadn't heard Big Bird when he first woke up. And a bowl of his Fruit Loops his special cereal, was waiting for him on the table in front of the TV with a spoon. Mama only gave him sugar cereals on special days, so he knew Mama couldn't have left it for him. He saw a fly at the edge of his cereal bowl, but it flew away when he swatted it. Carson heard a clanking sound from the kitchen. When he looked up, no one was there, although he'd seen a shadow streak across the wall in the blink of an eye. Gray Boy had seen it too. Gray Boy barked and ran chasing it until he was behind the tall counter and Carson couldn't see Gray Boy anymore. But Carson heard a yelp. Gray Boy's yelp bothered Carson, yes, but it was only one. And before Carson could wonder about why Gray Boy had made such a sound, the volume on the TV went higher, and Big Bird was dancing. And Carson forgot all about Gray Boy for an hour, maybe two. For the tiniest moment, Carson almost thought he saw Gray Boy being dragged across the floor behind him on a bed of ants. But when he turned around for a better look, Gray Boy was gone. He almost heard his parents' door open and close again. Carson never saw Gray Boy again either and he began to notice that Mama's plants were all dying and turning brown, then black, until they were the color of the ants. The ants were eating up everything alive they could find. Everything except Carson. Because he was only two, Carson did not spend much time wondering about the new way of things, the way the ants kept him warm and made food for him, and even let him float on them like a giant sponge in the bathtub, Sometimes they fanned out on the wall in a shape like a very tall man with a strange, spiky crown on his head. No, not a man. A thing with sharp shoulders and a long nose. Snout? And a strange, spiky crown. These weren't regular ants. The ants were part of something bigger that might even have a name. Sometimes, when the ants were wrapped around him in a blanket at night, Carson knew things. The creature was ancient and lived in the soil, summoned by blood and death and rage to nurture the forsaken. The ants had come to take care of him because his parents were gone. Not gone, exactly. Carson knew somehow that they were still in their bedroom, behind the closed door and something bad had happened to them. But they were in a better place now. That was what Daddy had said after his lizard went to sleep. See, Carson had kept a pet lizard in a box near his window, and Carson had seen how its belly had stopped breathing, and how its face got shrunken and wrinkled after some time. So once in a while, he thought of Mama and Daddy asleep, asleep in their bed. And he missed Gray Boy so much, and a great sadness fell over him something worse than sadness but whenever that happened no matter where he was he felt the ants come to him the caretakers ant army and they would rock him back and forth to and fro just like mama
2: Well, fellow travelers, was that a doozy? Or was that a doozy? If you feel like you need to turn on all the lights and I don't know, make a batch of cupcakes and watch Nailed It or something, I wouldn't blame you. But don't, because I have just the thing that'll help. Our second story is, shall we say, a bit more whimsical. Award-winning writer AC Wise has created a delightfully fun step-by-step guide to hosting your very own murder mystery party. It's sort of a love letter to haunted house stories, like The House on Haunted Hill, or The Haunting of Hill House, or every other movie or TV show with the words house and haunt in it. AC Wise has been a finalist for the Nebula Award, the Sunburst Award, the Lambda Literary Award, and the Aurora Award, and I couldn't be more excited to share some of her stories in audio for the first time anywhere. For your listening pleasure, here's How to Host a Haunted House Murder Mystery Party, originally published in issue 12 of Bourbon Pen and narrated for Realm by Caitlin Kelly.
4: How to Host a Haunted House Murder Mystery Party Choose your setting. Find a large house with lots of rooms one where the light switches are far enough away from each door that your guests will have to step into the room to turn them on. If possible, find a house where the electricity is fragile. Keep an eye on the weather report and schedule accordingly. A basement and an attic are essential, the former with a wood pile and a cast-iron stove, the latter with dress forms, an old hobby horse, dolls no one has thought about in years, and at least one antique steamer trunk large enough to hold a body. There should be mirrors in odd and unexpected places. Let your guests catch their reflections as they're groping for the light in a darkened room, and feel for a moment that they are not alone. Eventually, they will realize it's only a mirror, but that moment of pure terror is enough to set the mood. From that point on, they will continue to glance in the direction of the glass, wondering whether the reflection in the corner of their eye could really be them. There should be plenty of bedrooms, but few bathrooms. Of these bathrooms, one should contain a claw-foot tub deep enough that you cannot see the bottom of it while standing in the door. Showers should have their curtains pulled tightly closed before the evening begins. The kitchen should be incongruously bright, a break in the tension. A place where your guests will feel they may be safe for a while. A dining room table to seat at least 13. Chandeliers, narrow staircases requiring guests to ascend and descend one at a time. That one room you never go in, no matter what, even though the door has never been locked. Ideally, your house is already haunted, and only minimal preparation will be required. Creating your invitations. Use thick, good quality paper. Consider a scent, nothing crass like lilac or vanilla. Use something subtle, like wood smoke, reminding your guests of tales told around a campfire, or more obscure still, the scent of old books. That one book in particular, with the gruesome illustrations their parents warned would give them nightmares, but which they could never resist. The book they returned to again and again for the awful, delicious, and terrible thrill, reading it by flashlight under the covers, and later waking, screaming, betrayed by those same covers meant to keep them safe. That smell. The invitations should be done in calligraphy, to add a touch of class. Deliver the invitations by hand, no postmark, no return address. Invite extra guests. Invite at least one person liable to turn up late. Provide at least one guest with the wrong address so they become lost along the way. They will consider themselves lucky later after the fact, once all is said and done. Every tale needs a survivor. Don't be concerned if you don't have 13 close friends. The evening will work better if your guests are unacquainted with each other, At least on the surface. Do not be concerned that your guests will refuse. There is no doubt they will attend. They always do. Not for the secrets you know about them, and you do, but for what they have come to know about themselves in the long, lonely years they have spent waiting for just such an invitation to arrive. When the invitation comes, It will be a relief. They will be able to let go of the sense of dread, the one they have never been able to name. They will breathe out and say, Ah, yes, here it is at last. Most of them are long past thinking they can be forgiven. Some are even past believing they deserve this. No, they need this a ghost to give shape to their pain a physical manifestation of their loss and guilt. They will come because the ghosts you can offer them are the only way they can make sense of their worlds. A better question to ask before your evening begins. Why are you compelled to invite strangers to participate in your game? Do you still believe you can be forgiven? Do you believe ghosts are a communicable thing, Able to be passed off to an unwitting individual passing through your door? Making introductions. No real names will be used. The first guest shall be called Madame Edamame. The near palindrome, delicious, yet slightly unsettling. It will show your guests you have a sense of fun. There's no real harm to be had here. Next will be Miss Foster, not Mrs., not Ms., Miss. It is old-fashioned and infantilizing. It is also cruel. None of this is without intent. Where Madame Edamame's name is meant to put your guests at ease, Miss Foster's is meant to pull the rug out from beneath them. Everything is uncertain here. They are on dangerous ground. Miss Foster has been in and out of homes where she was never entirely welcome her entire life, always the changeling, never the adopted child. For all intents and purposes, she is still a child, hungry for acceptance and love, desperate to fit in. Did her families hurt her? Did she hurt them? Does she smell faintly of ash and the ghost of old fires? A little mystery in the guests adds to the mystery in the game. Some names will be more common. This is Mr. Evans. Just that. Nothing less, nothing more. There is also Mr. Espadrill, young Mr. Cleaves, Mrs. Hanover, Father Crispin, Elizabeth, no last name given, Mr. James, Mr. Otterley, And Captain Frank, there must always be a military officer invited to such affairs, though Captain Frank prefers her given name of Jane. She's put the war behind her after all, even though she will show up to your party wearing every medal she's earned. Don't forget to count yourself. You are a part of the game as well. Cocktails to set the mood. Start with the classics, old fashions, sidecars, Manhattans. These will give the party a timeless air and help disconnect your guests from place and time. Strengthen the illusion that they have been lifted from the world they know and set adrift in some past. But not their past, mind you. It is still safe here, still fun even those guests who do not usually partake or who have been known to imbibe too much and therefore have sworn to abstain, may feel compelled to accept your hospitality on this particular night. One drink so as not to be rude. One drink to ease the pressure of being among strangers in an uncertain situation. Drinks to loosen tongues and smooth the way. It is easier to mingle with a drink in your hand. A drink, or two, or many, will allow your guests to leave their baggage behind, at least for as long as it takes them to reach the bottom of each glass. Dinner is served. Dinner will be tense, despite the alcohol, or perhaps because of it. At this point, your guests will begin to question their decision to play along. They have always known they would, yet self-doubt will leave them restless. Do not be concerned. All is going according to plan. There will be wine brought up from cellars the house doesn't have, scotch, whiskey, brandy, and vodka in well-chilled glasses. This is when the first ghost will appear. It will be no more than a flicker of movement at the corner of the eye. Perhaps Mrs. Hanover will be the one to spot it, and her hand will fly to her mouth. Perhaps it will be Mr. James. He will start, jerking his chair back from the table as though pulled by some unseen hand. A fork will be dropped, or a glass may break. If you are especially fortuitous, the power will choose this moment to blink. But it will remain on. Nervous laughter will follow. Dear me, aren't we all so silly here, jumping at shadows? Tsk, tsk. None of your guests will admit to the ghost they've seen, the one they've always known to be waiting for them here. One can only outrun their past for so long. Smile, get through the meal despite the tightness in all throats, the lack of appetite, the sense of some worse blow about to fall. Everything will be fine. The late arrival, a.k.a. the thirteenth guest. He's a motorist whose car has broken down. Or perhaps you invited him. Who can be sure? Let's call him Mr. Perkins. His name is not important. Now your quota of 13 guests is complete. Rain will drip from the hem of his coat, and his overshoes will leave puddles on your floor. His arrival is heralded by a crash of thunder. Maybe one of the other guests lets out an involuntary gasp. Despite the lingering sense of unease, the other guests, consciously or not, have come to think of your party as their own. There is a proprietary sense. They are survivors thrown together to persevere against all odds. Mr. Perkins is an outsider. They have been in this together since the beginning. He has not. How can they trust him? He does not belong. Your party is going swimmingly so far dealing with potential pitfalls. The problem is, your house is actually haunted. This was never a game. There is a strong likelihood someone will die in earnest before the evening is done. There is no known solution to this pitfall. Do not be concerned. This is a feature, not a bug. Entertainment Variant number one, the séance. After dinner, bring out the Ouija board. There is no need to procure one beforehand. There are many closets in your house of many doors. One of them has a board. It is wrapped in your great aunt's favorite tablecloth, tucked away on a top shelf behind a pair of boots no one has ever worn. Ask your guests to join hands, dim the lights. Perhaps the power is already off by now. Light candles, either out of necessity or to set the atmosphere. Before the game begins, ensure no one is touching the planchette. It will move regardless. It will spell a name, which none of your guests claim to recognize, though at least two of them do. Mr. Otterly, Or perhaps Elizabeth, with no last name, will leave the table in disgust. They will consider departing the house altogether, but something will compel them to stay. There is a pressure, not visible, but certainly tangible, standing just before the front door. To pass through it is to drown. To pass through it, is to have all your worst experiences dredged up from the bottom of your soul and wrapped around you like a second skin. No one ever notices it coming into the house. Everyone notices when they try to leave. You have ceased to notice it at all. Entertainment, variant number two, Blind Man's Bluff. This game is traditionally played outdoors. However, your sitting room is more than large enough to serve. Perhaps it was once a ballroom? Draw the curtains against the lightning. Madame Edamame will wear the blindfold. Have your guests stand around her in a circle and spin her until she is dizzy and nearly falling down. The alcohol will help in this regard. As she reaches to steady herself, your guests will scatter and hide themselves away, beneath the grand piano, behind the tight drawn curtains, inside the curio cabinet, where the good china and glass figurines used to be displayed, the one with the shelves taken out long ago. Madame Adamame will stumble. She will call a name, possibly the name of one of your guests, but not the name they have been given for the game. Inside the curio cabinet, where shelves used to be, there will be one heartbeat and two sets of breath. Behind the curtains, a stifled laugh. Beneath the piano, two sets of eyes peer out at the game, even though the guest hiding there hid alone. Madame Edamame will pretend not to be afraid. She will feel someone touch her hand. By the time your other guests think to help her, it will be too late. She will already have left bloody gouges on her cheeks, tearing the blindfold away. Entertainment Variant Number Three Exploration This is the most popular variant. It always comes down to exploration and isolation in the end. A ghost for every guest and each to their own. Divide the party into pairs and send them out in different directions. Your guests may be reluctant. There is safety in numbers, after all. Remind them that none of them will be alone. If this isn't exactly comforting, remind them that they came here of their own free will. What happens from here on out is out of your hands. First exploration team, the library. Miss Foster and young Mr. Cleves will proceed to the library. Young Mr. Cleves will grope his way toward the light, or where he believes the light ought to be. He will trip over a pile of books, cursing softly. He will lose track of Miss Foster right away. He will be terrified simultaneously that he is alone And no longer alone, something will break. Don't worry, material things can always be replaced. When young Mr. Cleaves finds the light, it will illuminate Miss Foster, standing in front of one of the floor to ceiling bookshelves. In all her unrooted childhood, books were her constant. Her sole anchor in the dark, her lips will move, But young Mr. Cleves won't be able to make out the words. He will be profoundly grateful for this fact. Blood, a single drop, will fall from Miss Foster's palm. She will not turn when young Mr. Cleves calls her name. He will be profoundly grateful for this as well. The idea of seeing her face fills him with blank dread he has begun to suspect she is not so young as she seems. At the same time, the fear that she is unable to move, will never move again, haunts him. He cannot leave her here, but he cannot bring himself to touch her shoulder either, as if a haunting could be passed along like a communicable disease. He will be forced to admit to himself that he was hoping for something more. Exploring a dimly lit house with a lovely and fragile young woman, girl. He will feel small, seeing his impulse to chivalry for the base thing it is. His pulse will slow. It will slow continually, each beat more distant from the next. Paradoxically, his breath will speed with the waiting, which will seem interminable waiting to see whether the distance between one beat and the next becomes too vast, and they stop. Second Exploration Team, The Basement Mr. James and Captain Frank will make their way to the basement. They will reach the bottom of the steps before they find the light. The basement smells of dust and the memory of rain. Something sweet and sharp, and long buried underlying both. The woodpile and the glowering pot-bellied stove will greet them. Mr. James will be reminded, inexplicably, of his father. He will pick up the axe, even though the blade is sunk deep into one of the logs, abandoned mid-chop. And it will require a great amount of effort to pull it free. He will not understand why he does these things, but he will be compelled. The blade is rusty. The handle fits his grip like an old friend. Mr. James will swing the axe, just once to test the heft, in his mind. But his arms will ache as though he swung it again and again. Captain Frank, Jane, as she prefers to be called, will think, Fuck no, I am not dying this way. I did not survive two wars to buy it in a moldy basement. She will see, again, buildings torn apart. Hear the screams following an IED explosion. Every IED explosion. She will taste plaster and cement, blown to dust, as her mind struggles to rearrange a puzzle of scattered limbs. She will think, yes. This is familiar, this I know, and she will do what needs to be done. Captain Frank will limp when she climbs the stairs back into the light. She will be alone, her hair will be disheveled, and one of her medals missing. Behind her, the basement will be dark. Even if she did look back, she wouldn't be able to see a thing. Third exploration team, the garden. Father Crispin and Mr. Evans will take the brick path to the shed at the end of the yard, a straight line from the house's back door. There is no light in the shed, which is scarcely bigger than a tomb. And why should there be? Most people don't garden in the dark. Father Crispin will prop the door open with a brick. It will take a moment for his eyes to adjust and a moment longer to realize he is alone. Mr. Evans vanished somewhere between the shed and the back door. Or perhaps he has always been alone. Father Crispin will breathe in the scent of turned earth and old clay. Trowels, rakes, and clawed instruments hang from the walls. Bottles of fertilizers and weed killer and rat poison Line the shelves. Everything in the shed can be used to kill. Even though he isn't a man of the cloth, not outside of this evening and the role you have assigned him, Father Crispin will whisper a prayer. As he does, he will suddenly remember the monastery where he took his vows, a place he has surely never been. Yet, he will know how his days there smelled of earth, and how he spent long hours in the garden, weeding rows of tomato and cucumber plants by hand. Water will drip from the hem of Father Crispin's cassock. A voice at the back of his head will suggest he kneel, not to pray, but to see better into the corners of the shed. He will find a bundle wrapped in burlap and tied with twine. He will not want to open it. He will dread opening it with all his soul, and he will open it all the same. The bones inside are too small, too light to be human, yet too perfect to be anything else. He will know, he has always known, this was waiting for him here. Father Crispin will cradle the bones close against his chest, murmuring the words of a long-forgotten lullaby, weeping softly the whole while. Evaluating your party's success. There are more rooms and more pairings. There is no need to enumerate them all. Some things are better left unseen, as Father Crispin well knows. Besides, it would take all the fun out of your party to know every detail in advance. As your evening unwinds, there are several ways it might go. You could find yourself with a house full of final girls, or a house full of final boys. You could find yourself with a mix of both, or neither. You might find yourself all alone. It has happened many times before. Ideally, this is the part of the evening when you gather your guests to reveal how and where and who and why. However, it seems there is no one left to gather. You aren't even certain anyone has been murdered, or whether there is any crime to reveal. There are human remains in your house, to be sure, but it is highly likely those have been there all along. All that remains is your own exploration, a foray through the empty rooms of your house to take stock of the evening's game. You may delay, hesitate, hem and haw, but sooner or later, you'll have to climb the attic stairs and throw open the steamer trunk that is large enough to fit a body inside. You will have to descend to the basement, return the axe to its place, and use your fingernails to pry up the floorboards. You will have to go to the library and the garden shed, the kitchen and the conservatory. You will have to stand on your tiptoes in the bathroom door and hope that just this once, you'll be able to see inside the clawfoot tub without entering the room. As the host, it is your duty to search every last nook and cranny to be sure but to be sure of what? That you are alone? That you have never been alone? Sooner or later, you'll have to go into the room you swore you'd never enter again. The door stands an inch ajar, waiting for you. You will stand in the hallway for as long as you can, then you'll grope for the light, and there will be a moment of panic before you remember. All the switches are far away from all the doors. You must step into the dark. This darkness is physical, like dropping into a pool. It closes over your head, and maybe this time, just this once, you really will drown. Maybe it's better not to reach for the light. If you do, You'll know the faceless thing in the corner isn't just a shadow. You'll know that in the closet, there's a hanged girl. Someone is waiting in the corner, by the crib, by the old hobby horse, by the rocking chair, where no one has sat for years. They were in the room a moment before you. They just left. They must have passed you in the hall, close enough to touch. If you reach for the light now, a hand will reach back for you. Fingers will brush across your skin. But if you wait long enough, if you refuse to act, the decision will be made for you. Your eyes will adjust, the shadows in the corner, in the closet, under the bed by the chair, will coalesce. You will see, even if your eyes are closed. There are so many ways to host a haunted house murder mystery party, but there is only one way this can end. This room, this house, your life, have all the hallmarks of a haunting. You should know by now, you cannot be forgiven. By now, you should need a ghost to make your pain real. But standing paralyzed in the door, counting the space between one heartbeat and the next, you can't help but ask yourself over and over again, what did you do to deserve this?
2: Want more horror? If you're looking for something intense, check out one of our newest shows, Silverwood, where a crack between dimensions has ushered in a monster and unleashed it upon some wilderness excursions in the California redwoods. If you're looking for something historical, we have another suggestion for you. Beatrix Green is about a Victorian medium who's faked seances to make a living, only to find herself in the midst of an actual haunting. Both shows are out now and available wherever you get your podcasts. At Realm, we're all about storytelling, and we have a lot more where all this came from. Come back next week for two short stories by award-winning writer Ken Liu and starring none other than Mr. Sulu himself, the one and only George Takei. Until next time, whatever dimension you're in, safe travels.
1: You're listening to Tales Beyond Time. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Tales Beyond Time, Episode 1, features Caretaker, written by Tanana Reevedu, and How to Host a Haunted House Murder Mystery Party, written by A.C. Wise. It's produced by Mary Asadolahi and Marco Palmieri, associate produced by Alexis Latshaw, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and performed by David Sadson and Caitlin Kelly. Audio produced by Ty Duff Studios. Additional editing by Nicholas Papalio cover art by Kendall Thomas.